Well, good morning. morning. Have y'all enjoyed this Arctic blast? We've gotten the last couple days. Almost layered up this morning to preach. It was great. Probably like many of you guys, uh, I had some random jobs growing up. My first job was when I was 15 years old. I worked as a custodian at Baseball City, which was a baseball batting cage. I graduated from there and took on the prestigious job as a tree bagger at Papa Noel's Christmas Trees, which was a seasonal job. Uh, I worked as a stock boy at the back of a collect- Christmas collectible store on, uh, right off of West Avenue. I uh, did my time as a lifeguard at Fiesta, Texas. Um, was a camp counselor, so I did, and I furthered my higher education at Texas A&M University. Yes, by swiping thousands of student IDs as I allowed them access to the student rec center. But maybe the most unique job that I've ever had, or that I had growing up, was the summer I spent as a bellhop, a bellboy, and a valet at the Weston Riverwalk Hotel in downtown San Antonio. And at the time, the Weston was where all the celebrities stayed. And it's where all the NBA teams stayed when they came through to play the Spurs. And if you recall, 2003, the Spurs won the championship that year. So we had celebrities at the Westin all the time. And because we had celebrities there all the time, we had a lot of limousines. We always had limousines coming to the hotel. And so I got to know some of the limousine drivers, limo drivers. And then one day I was working the front door and this limo driver came through, who had come through a number of times. And we both had some time to kill. He was there to pick up one of our celebrities, and we just started talking. I said, hey, man, how long have you been a limo driver? And he said, about 20 years. I go, wow. I go, I bet you've driven around some celebrities. And he said, oh, yeah, a lot. I said, well, tell me, who is the best celebrity that you've ever driven around? Like, who was the most gracious, kind, just awesome, authentic? Like, who was the best celebrity that's ever been in your limousine and his answer was amazing because he looked at me and he said oh that's easy that would be the band known as you (laughs) too I was ecstatic because those of y'all who know me which he didn't it was unbeknownst to him but you too was and is and always will be my favorite band. My favorite band. As a matter of fact, I have some family and friends who've sat me down and said that they think that my devotion and affection for them is a little bit unhealthy. But they are wrong. Because there's no such thing as unhealthy devotion and affection for you 2 and their music. And after I stopped crying uh, tears of joy at their answer... I looked up at the limo driver and I said, hey, tell me, tell me something. What were they like? What were they like? And he then proceeded to blow my mind over the next 15 minutes telling me stories about his time with the band. And as I was thinking about this week, that that story this week, it struck me that that's the funny thing about famous people. It's the funny thing about celebrities is we oftentimes know what their public persona is, right? We know what... The, the stage person looks like. But we wonder, I wonder what that person is like 
for real. I wonder what they're like behind the curtain. And how many of us do the same thing when it comes to God? We come to church on Sunday, sing praise songs. We speak a good line. We know God's public persona, and we know the public persona we try to present about God. But maybe every once in a while, deep inside, maybe in the closets of our soul, we go there and we say, I wonder what God is really like. And there may not be a more important question one faces in life than the questions of who is God and what is He like? Who is God and what is He like? How we answer these two questions will not only determine our eternal destiny, but they will have a tremendous impact on our relationship with God and our experience in life in the here and now. A few weeks ago when Roger was sick, I stepped in and I preached the message on Colossians 3. And during that message, I asked all of us a question. And the question I asked was, what does God think when He thinks about you? What does He think when He thinks about you? And this morning, I want to turn the tables a little bit. I want to flip the script. This morning, I want to ask us, what do we think when we think about God? What do we think when we think about God. What is our theology? What is our understanding of who God is and what He's like? We've been going through the book of James for the past five or six weeks, and if you haven't already picked up on it, you will. But James is a very practical book. James is very much, hey, you guys are being persecuted. Here's how you need to treat one another. Here's how you need to work through trials. Here's how you need to live out your faith as a new believer. It's a very practical book. But the passage we're going to look at this morning, combined with the passage that Roger spoke on last week, is a passage in James that has significant theology. Significant theology. Because it speaks right to who God is and what He's like. You know, as I read Scripture, two things jump off of the page at me as far as what God, what I feel like God really desires from me. He desires that we believe correctly, and He desires that we behave correctly. That we believe correctly, and that we behave correctly. God is interested in doctrine and devotion. And He should be because those two are connected. They're connected because how I think has a massive impact on what I do. So how I view God, how I understand God to be, is consequently can have a huge impact on how I relate to Him. How I worship Him. And this is why it is imperative that we must think correctly about who God is and what He's like. As one of my seminary professors, Dr. Kreider, says, everyone does theology. Everyone. Everyone has a concept of God. Everyone has an understanding of God. The goal is to do good theology. Everyone does theology. The goal is to do good theology. And James wants us to do good theology. James wants us to rightly understand the nature and character of our God. James wants us to know that our God is good. And that He gives good gifts, including the gift of salvation. So if you'll turn with your Bibles to me 
to James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 16 through 18. I'm also going to put them on the screen so you can follow along there. Starting in verse 16, James writes, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And a couple things to note here. Number one, he is speaking to Christians. These are believers. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. He calls them my beloved brethren. And the second thing to note is something is deceiving them. There is some lie, there is some idea that they are either entertaining or even believing that James says that is not of God. That is not okay. We need to correct that and think correctly about God. And in regards to what that lie is, that's what we talked about last week. That's found in verses 13 through 15. So if you jump back a few verses, we see that the lie has to do with them ultimately blaming God for sin. Ultimately, it's their temptation... And they're blaming God for the fact that they've fallen into temptation. And they're saying, God, this is really, if we want to be totally honest, this is your fault. You made me this way. I'm wired this way. Why'd you throw that temptation in my life? That wasn't cool. This is your fault. And James says, "Uh uh-uh. We see that in verses 13 through 15. James writes, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So James is writing to believers. And he's saying, guys, listen to me. Stop blaming God. Stop blaming God. He's not the source of your temptation. He's not the source of sin. He's not the source of evil. That's not True. But if we were going to be completely honest with one another, I think we would admit that we all are tempted to believe lies about who God is. We are all tempted to believe things contrary to who He is and what is revealed about Him in Scripture. And maybe the easiest temptation to fall into is ultimately to doubt whether or not he's really good. Say, I just don't know if you're really good, God. As one commentator put it, if the great temptation of a non-Christian is unbelief, then the great temptation of a believer is misbelief. If the great temptation of a non-Christian is unbelief, then the great temptation for a Christian is misbelief. And James says, brothers, sisters, do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. God is not the source of your sin. God is not the source of your temptation. God is not the source of evil. God is not the one to blame. God is good. And so verse 16 is a reminder of what we talked about last week, if it's a reminder about what not to believe about God, verses 17 and 18 tell us, hey, here's what you do want to affirm about God. Here's what you should believe about God, and here's why. Look at what James says in verse 17. He writes, 
Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Here in the text where James says every good thing given and every perfect gift from above, it's a little bit odd, right? So a lot, you know, a lot of commentators talk about how it's got a real poetic cadence in the Greek and that maybe he was going for a literary effect. And on the flip side, he uses two different words in the Greek for God's gifts. He used two different words. The first word refers to the act of giving. And the second one denotes the actual gifts received. So James is emphasizing the goodness of receiving something from God and the perfect quality of whatever it is that God gives. It's both the gift and the giver. James is telling us God's giving is continuously good and His gifts are always perfect. Always. Notice the contrast from what we just read. Verses 13 through 15 told us what God does not give. Does not give temptation. Does not give sin. Does not give evil. But in verse 17, James tells us, starts telling us, hey, here's what he does give. Here's what he does give. He gives gifts. All of them. Every single one. That's from God. Every good thing comes from God. Every perfect gift comes from God. Sin is birthed out of the lust of man, yes. But blessings, those are birthed from above. Those are gifts of God. Those are from the Father of lights. Father of lights. What a tremendous name. What a tremendous reference to God. This is the only place in Scripture where God is called by that name. So it's an ancient Jewish way of referring to God as Creator. His creative power. So the, the, the lights are the stars and the moon and the sun. He's the Father of them. He's their Creator. He's the Father of lights. So why does James use this phrase to describe God? What's his point? Why is he doing that? He could have chosen any other name. Why describe him as the Father of lights? Well, I think it's found in the second half of verse 17. Because when you look at the second half of verse 17, James describes the Father of lights as someone with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. With whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James compares God's unchanging nature to the changing nature of the moon, the stars, and the sun that He created. I love, uh, there's a pastor in California named John MacArthur, and I love how he describes this comparison. He writes, He created all of them, but He's not like them. They vary. They change. They dim. They brighten. They bring light. They cast shadow. They're here in the daytime, gone at night. Here at night, gone in the daytime. Their benefit to us comes and goes, but God, He's not like that. God's brilliant, bright light of glory and light of goodness and light of grace is no varying thing. Follow James's logic here. Follow his argument. He says, hey, God is not the source of your sin. Your lust of the flesh, that's what gives birth to sin. God is actually perfect. And He gives good gifts. And not only does He give good gifts, that's all He has done, 
will, ever will do or even can do because God is forever unchanging. He's forever unchanging. There's no variation or shifting shadow. He's eternally the same. And He can only give according to His nature. And His nature is good. This is the beautiful doctrine called immutability. God is immutable. He is changeless. He is forever perfect without variation or shifting shadow. God is always good and He is always giving good gifts. And that's the only way He will ever be. Friends, do we recognize... Do we recognize God as the source of everything that is good in our lives? That every blessing is from God. Every gift is from God. Do we thank Him? That's not for me, is it? Okay. Do we live a life of gratitude, recognizing the immeasurable blessings and grace and unending gifts that our God constantly gives us? Or are we too busy blaming Him? Do we recognize the blessings that He continually showers on us every single day? Are we too busy looking at that place in our life that we don't like and saying, what's up with that? Where are you at there, God? Are we too busy complaining? My wife Victoria and I had an incident earlier this year that forever changed us. It forever changed me as a parent, as a person. Um, all of that. We have uh, two sons. I have a three and a half year old named Elijah, and I have a one and a half year old named Luke. And early around January, we noticed Elijah started having a growth on his ankle. And we didn't think anything of it, no big deal, didn't seem to bother him, but it kept growing and growing and growing. And so finally, you know, April, May, Victoria and I were like, we need to go to the doctor. We need to take him to the pediatrician. So we take Elijah to the pediatrician. She looks at it and she goes, hey, y'all need to go get an x ray, like right now. So we go and get an x ray. We get the results the next day or the doctor calls us and they say, hey, you need to go see this specialist like this week. So we set up a, an appointment to go see the specialist and I couldn't go to that doctor appointment because I had a commitment here at Wayside. So Victoria goes and during that appointment, the doctor is using these big words and tells Victoria, here's my cell phone number. We need to get Elijah in an MRI this week and have your husband call me. So Victoria calls me, and I get the news. And of course, I call this doctor right away. And we have this conversation that I'll never forget. He, you know, we're just going back and forth. He's using big words. But then one kind of registers. Carcinoma? What? Wait a second. I'm no doctor. But wait, that's, that's cancer, right? And he's like, well, Michael, look, look, we don't know exactly what it is. That's why we want to get him into this MRI right away. We're just concerned about this, that, or the other. Now, I know some of y'all have had that conversation before. It's, it's indescribable. You're my, I, can't, I couldn't even think. I almost dropped the phone. I, I was tearing up on the phone, and I, I barely was able to finish the conversation before we hung up. We got the MRI done maybe the, two days later, and we had to wait 48 to 72 hours for the results. Those were long hours. Victoria and I prayed so many prayers. 
We cried so many tears. We read way too many internet articles. (laughs) And we basically were horrible parents because we let Elijah do whatever he wanted to. He was like, Mom, Dad, can I have ice cream for dinner? We are like, yeah, buddy. I'll scoop it out. Mom, Dad, can I sleep with you guys? Come on in, buddy. Dad, can I watch the Spurs game with you? Put on your Ginobili jersey, buddy. Put on your silver and black. Let's do this. We've been paying the effects for that for a long time, by the way. But after those few days, we got the news from the doctor that Elijah's growth was no more than a complicated combination of multiple cysts in the same vicinity that gave the appearance and the feel of a tumor. Now, we were obviously overjoyed, to say the least. Um, But that week changed us. It changed my family forever. It changed how we view each and every day together. And we are just so thankful for every moment. Every single moment I get with my kids and with my wife. Because it's a gift. I'm not owed it. It's a gift. A gift from a God who is good. And who is the giver of everything that is good in my life. I'm truly convinced that the only disposition that is appropriate for a Christian is one of gratitude. I'm convinced that the only disposition appropriate for a believer in Christ is one of gratitude. I'm not talking about a pseudo-veneer, fake happiness where we pretend like there's nothing wrong. Because there's tons of stuff wrong in our world. And there's tons of stuff wrong with each one of us. But I'm talking about a deep-seated gratitude that recognizes how indebted we are to God for creating us, for redeeming us, for giving us the Holy Spirit and empowering us to walk in obedience and for the promise of eternal life. We as Christians are to be people of immense gratitude. Because our God is good. Our God gives good gifts, and our God never changes. He was, is, and always will be a good God who gives gifts to His people. Now, I understand you may be sitting there saying, Michael, hey man, great story. Praise God. That was, you got my heartstrings. Good move right there. Nice illustration. But here's the deal, Michael. I had that same conversation with my doctor, but my results came back positive. I do have cancer. Hey, Michael, great, great deal that Elijah is doing well. Here's the deal, though, man. Mine's not. I lost my child. Hey, Michael, you and Victoria, y'all seem to have a pretty cool marriage. That's really cool. Well, here's the thing with me is that my spouse left me, Michael. And the list goes on. We have people here who are trying to have kids. And it's not happening. Where, where are you, God? I work with the College of Singles. This is a shocker, but some of the singles in there want to get married. <laughs> where are you, God? 
I'm trying to walk in obedience. It says you're a good gift giver. Hey, Michael, I know you're a pastor, and so you probably don't ever get beyond these four walls, and you don't know what's going on in the world. But have you read the news? Have you read the news, Michael? Do you know what's happening to Christians in the Middle East? Do you know what's happening to our brothers and sisters in Iraq? Hey, wh- wh- how, are they, how are they supposed to take verse 17, Michael? What kind of gifts are they getting from the Father of Lights right now? I mean, this is an important question. And friends, I want to remind you of something. James is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who are being persecuted. They've been scattered. Remember what he called them in verse 1? He says, the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. These are people that he's writing to, Jewish converts who are experiencing persecution in ways reminiscent of what we're seeing in the Middle East right now. That's who he's writing to. And James knows that there's a danger, there's a temptation to question the goodness of God, especially in the midst of suffering and trials. So here in verse 18, a verse really that a whole sermon could be preached on, James gives an apologetic for the goodness of God. He gives an apologetic for the good gifts that God gives. He says, you want to know how God is good? You want, how, you want to know how I know that God is good? I'm about to tell you. You want to know how I know that God gives good gifts? I'm about to tell you. And James doesn't mess around with any small thing. He goes straight for the ace of spades. And he says, I know because, and you should know, because of the gift of salvation. He goes right there. The trump card. Look at verse 18. James writes, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. Now what does it mean to be brought forth? What is James describing? Well, if you go back to verse 15, a few verses prior, think back to what the analogy James used for sin and death. Verse 15, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So sin brings forth death. And the picture is childbirth. We talked about this last week. It's childbirth. And here in verse 18, the picture is once again one of childbirth. He even uses the same Greek verb in both places, in verse 15 and verse 18. To be brought forth. This is, this is, child, this is to be born. But this is a very different type of birth. This is totally different than the birth we see in verse 15 that leads to death. This is a verse that leads to life. This is a birth that is one of a spiritual nature. This is what it means to be born again, as Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John 3. This is a birth that comes from above, from the Father of lights. So lust gives birth to sin, which brings death, but God, in the exercise of His will, purposed us to a birth that is spiritual and a birth that brings life, eternal life. And how does this spiritual birth come to fruition? What is the tool that God uses? What is the pattern? What is the formula? What is His mode for bringing forth new believers? And James tells us, 
by the word of truth. The word of truth. The word of truth. This is a reference to the gospel. It's a reference to the gospel. We see this in places like Colossians 1, verse 5. Paul writes, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also is constantly bearing fruit. Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, And you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal and promised the Holy Spirit. So what James is saying is that God brings about spiritual birth, and the theological term for this is regeneration. God regenerate, regenerates His people in accordance to His will, His choice, as we who are, who are dead in our trespasses believe in the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. This is why Paul states in Romans 1.16 that I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? What's it gotten for you? Prison? Whippings? Why are you not ashamed? For it is the power of God to, for salvation to everyone who believes. That's why I'm not ashamed. Because in that gospel, somehow God brings about salvation for everyone who believes. That's why I'm not ashamed. Now before we move on, there are two things I want to highlight here. I just want to bring some light on them. I don't want us to gloss over. First off, notice it is God who is the one who brings about our salvation. It is God. It's an act of God. Salvation is an act of God. It says, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. The Greek word is bulimai. And it speaks to God's desire or will. But it's not like, hey, I feel like doing this. It's like, hey, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is my will. And bulimai is in the aorist passive form here, which indicates that this new birth that James is discussing, this new birth that James is talking about, is a birth that's produced by a source outside of the recipient. The recipient is passive in the transaction. The source is active in it. So what it's saying, what, what, he, what he's talking about here, is that God actively accomplished our salvation. He did the work. He brought, actively brought us forth according to His will. We received it. We were on the passive end. And the bottom line is what James is saying is that we do not earn our salvation. It is completely the work of God. We are to respond by faith. We are responsible for responding and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, salvation is by grace. And it's an act of God on our behalf. And we need to keep this truth in mind because in a few weeks, we're going to land in one of the most contentious passages in the New Testament. We're going to be in James 2. Verses 14 through 26, which talk a lot about faith and works, and which have tripped up a lot of people theologically through the years. But listen to what he's saying here in 118. By the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. His gracious act on our behalf. The second thing I want us to take notice of are the implications of the fact that this new life that is brought forth, this spiritual birth, this regeneration, is brought forth by the word of truth. 
So regeneration happens when individuals exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ believe. And here's the question I want to ask us. How are they going to hear about it? How are they going to hear about this gospel? Typically, normatively, this will happen when somebody shares it with them. Somebody speaks it. Somebody explains it. That's when it will happen. I'm always convicted and encouraged by Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. It says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. But how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Look at verse 14 again, guys. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Now this does not mean that you're with your friend, you've been working on them, you've been loving on them, you've been building trust with them, you feel the Holy Spirit moving in them, you're right about to share the Gospel with them, and you're like, hey, time out, hold on. Let me get Roger on the phone. <laughs> Let me call up Michael. He'll be here in like 20 minutes. Says i got to have a preacher. That's not what it's talking about. This is not talking about preacher as an ordained minister. This is someone who's individually proclaiming their faith. They're speaking their faith. And the truth about the word of truth and our role in proclaiming it is massively important. And here's why. As we have already discussed, God is the one who saved, period, saves us, period. But for whatever reason that I don't know, He says, I want to use you. And I want to use you. I don't need y'all. Acts 17 says, what can man bring to God? He needs nothing from human hands. But He says, I am going to use you to bring new life. To take my message out. To share about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This means that we as Christians do not bring about salvation in people's lives by reforming their behavior. The gospel is not a reformation of behavior. It's not, hey, we need to get the laws of the land aligned with God so that people can be saved. It's not, we don't bring salvation by being cultural crusaders, per se. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Nor do we as Christians bring about salvation by helping individuals change their socioeconomic status. It's not the gospel. Nor we as Christians do we bring about salvation through the institution or the instituting of democratic freedoms. It's not the gospel. Nor do we bring about salvation by just being so nice at work, so cordial, so hardworking, that people recognize us and say, man, that guy's he's a little bit different. He's a really swell guy. And then they go home having no idea why. 
I mean, how many of us know someone who does not know the gospel that is a good, moral, upstanding person? Probably your neighbor. How many of us um, know somebody who's wealthy that doesn't know Jesus? How about, how many of us know somebody who lives in a place where democracy reigns? How many of us know people at work that work hard, they do a good job, people like them, and they're not Christians? Now hear me, because I don't want this to be misinterpreted. Because I know I've stepped on a lot of toes. (laughs) These are all worthy endeavors. I affirm These are all worthy endeavors. We should want the laws of our land to reflect our God who's a moral God. We should want culture to affirm and to love the things that God loves. We should have a heart for the poor like our Savior did. And give to those who are in need. Amen. All of it. We should defend those who can't defend themselves. We should fight against injustice. Those are are marks of a believer, man. That's the real deal. We should live lives that stand out because of our honesty and our integrity and our hardworking and our faithfulness and whatever it is and wherever it is God has placed us. But, brothers and sisters, those, though great and worthy pursuit, are not what brings about the new birth James is talking about. That's not what brings about regeneration. That which brings forth new life is the word of truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news. The one that says, hey... You are a sinner. You're creating the image of God. I'm creating the image of God, but we have rebelled. And because of that sin, there is a chasm that separates us from God that nothing that we can do in our end can get us there. But God, the one who exists in Trinity outside space and time, said, I'm not through with you. And from all eternity, He planned to come in the form of the Son, and took on flesh, and walked the earth, fully God and fully man. And He did what we could not do. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And then instead of us on the cross, because of our sin and our rebellion against our Creator, He willingly went there. And the nails that should have come through our hands went through His. And He chose to hang up there. He chose to do it. Because both His holiness and His love. As Romans 3.26 says, that God may be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just because there's a penalty for sin. And He's paying it. And He's the justifier because He loves you. And He went to the cross for you. And if we will receive that gift, if we will believe in the Gospel, the Word of Truth, we will be saved. His righteousness will be given to us and God will look down on us and say, that guy is righteous because of his faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Folks, that's what saves. That is what brings new life. 
That is the word of truth. That is the gospel. And that is a message that must be proclaimed if we are to change eternal destinies and not just temporal addresses. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. In closing, James finishes up this incredible verse with the reason for God's gracious activity and salvation. James writes, the reason that God did this is so that we would be a kind of first fruits amongst his creatures. The idea of first fruits would have a deep significance to James's readers. This was a theme deeply embedded in the Mosaic Law. You could find it in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But the first fruits basically means two things your first and your best. I want your first and I want your best. It might be crops, animal, or people, whatever, but it's us. It was them by faith saying, hey, God, I'm going to give you the initial thing I got, the first and the best, because I know that you are faithful and that you will complete what you began. You are faithful to see it through. And because of that, here's the first fruits. They belong to you. They are the first part dedicated to God of a full crop that's coming later. And through the word of truth, the God of the universe in whom there is no darkness at all, as 1 John tells us, no sin, no evil, the one who gives good gifts and gives them according to his unchanging, immutable, holy character, has in his great wisdom made us the redeemed of a first fruit, as first fruits of what is to come. We are a picture of what's to come. A time when Christ will return. Where the created world will be restored to its intended order. When Jesus will reign as the conquering king from the house of David, just like God said he would. When all knees will bow and all tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is who our God is and that is how we should forever understand our God to be. A God that is good. A God that is never the source of sin or evil. He's sovereign over it, but He's never the source of it. A God who loves us, who cares for us, who gives blessings upon blessings according to His unchanging divine nature. And a God who has given us the greatest gift of all. The gift of salvation. New life. Setting us apart as a down payment. A foretaste, a foreshadowing of a salvation that is to come that will encompass all of creation. That is a God who is good and that is a God who is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so faithful and you are so good and you have given us so much that we don't deserve. We come before you and say, Thank you. Thank you. Every gift you give us is undeserved. May we walk in gratitude, not just for the things we experience here, but for the gift of new life and for the promises that you have for us in the age to come. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for your work on our behalf. Thank you for being faithful even when we're faithless. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.